Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. So we're going through the book of Daniel. It's comparable to what Revelation is to the New Testament. It's the Old Testament apocalypse. Apocalypse means that it's looking forward into the future, but it uses language that is symbolic. It uses metaphors, similes, uh, cryptic phrases. And so one has to really pour into it and study it and Hopefully, our understanding has been pretty accurate in the way I'm presenting it to you. But now in the ninth chapter, we're dealing with a a somewhat controversial passage. It's famously known as Daniel's 70 Weeks. And there's many different views and understanding of this passage. Everybody agrees it's prophetic in nature, it's looking forward, but not all Bible scholars agree that it's referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the view that I take. And I, the way I'm presenting it, I think it makes a lot of sense. I can't see the interpretation of those who say it refers to the infamous ruler out of Syria known as Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who was like an Old Testament prototype of the Antichrist. But there are those who can't believe that Daniel is writing from the 6th century B.C. and looking this far ahead and giving us an accurate presentation of what's coming down the pike in human history. So people that doubt that God knows the future or that the Bible is inspired or anything like that, they They put another slant on this, and they make not this Daniel that is writing is not from the 6th century B.C., but much later, writing almost the time that events unfold. So we would call him a pseudo-Daniel, calls himself Daniel. But what settles it for me is Jesus Christ, who said, according to what Daniel the prophet said, The abomination of desolation is coming, and you're to flee to the mountains when that happens. So Jesus affirmed the prophecy of Daniel with that reference, I believe, that he was a true prophet, not some fake prophet who came later in history. So this section from verse 24 to 27, the last four verses of the ninth chapter, This is Daniel's 70 weeks. And so I've slowed way down, and we're at a pretty much a turtle's pace here. We're just taking it one verse each Sunday. So we covered verse 24, last week verse 25, and now today verse 26. Actually, verse 26 is the easiest verse. The one next week is the most difficult, verse 27. But let me read again this passage to you. Again, who who is speaking these words? This is not Daniel speaking. This is the angel Gabriel. He came in response to Daniel's prayer, which is at the beginning of the chapter. 
And he comes to give Daniel this message in response to his prayer about the fact that Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon is coming to an end. Daniel's been there the whole time. He was taken as a young man, as a teenager, to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar almost 70 years ago. So he's in his 80s plus. Some say he's 90 years old. And he sees from the prophecy of Jeremiah that the 70-year captivity is coming to an end. And so he is stirred up by this prophecy of Jeremiah to pray and to seek the Lord and to pray for his people, to pray for the city, to pray for the sanctuary, the, the temple. And he argues with God about this to bring about the return of his people to their homeland. So this answer that Gabriel brings is an amazing thing that we have. There's nothing like it in the Bible. Let me read it for you. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Now, who does all that? There's only one person in the history of the world who dealt with the issue of sin. That's Jesus Christ. So this pertains to him and his work and what he did when he came into this world. And to bring and to bring in everlasting righteousness. See, that's the other side. We need our sins taken away. I need my guilt taken away so that God doesn't send me to hell. But I also need a righteousness put to my account so that he can receive me into his favor as one who has obeyed him and kept the law. And the Lord Jesus took care of both those problems. By obeying in our place and then by dying in our place. He takes away our guilt and he gives us a positive righteousness to put to our account. To seal both the vision and the prophet. To anoint and to anoint the most holy place. So when we, when we dealt with verse 24, we were looking at the, the results of what is going to take place by whoever, what he says here, what is going to result from the 70 weeks. What are the blessings? What is the accomplishments? that are going to be enacted in the 70 weeks. Now, what is the 70 weeks? Remind you again, in the original, what it says, it's 70 sevens. The word for weeks is a Hebrew word that, mean, that is both the number seven, it has two meanings, it's the number seven, and also is a unit of time of seven of something. So we normally think of a week as seven days. Here, it cannot mean a week of seven days. That's only 490 days from when Daniel tells us this is all going to be accomplished. It doesn't fit to make it days. It has to be years. So we're looking at a time frame of 490 years. Seventy sevens of years. So last week we saw, So know therefore and understand... That from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of 
literally an anointed one, a ruler. This is very kind of ambiguous a little bit. There shall be seven weeks, and I want to change the translation here because the ESV is not correct to, to put a period after seven weeks, period, and then it says, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. This completely changes the meaning. So they don't tell us who the translators are of the ESV. If you look in the beginning, not going to find who translated the book of Daniel. But somebody's ideas to the meaning of Daniel is being inserted into this translation right here. The way this should read is seven weeks plus or and 62 weeks. It's putting the two time periods together. It, the city of Jerusalem, shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. Now, the verse for today. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This is the easiest verse in the 70 weeks. Last week was a little more tricky to explain it. Now, verse 27, the, the most difficult one is right here. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed in is poured out on the desolator. You will notice in the reading that the 70 weeks was divided by Gabriel into three unequal time periods. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and verse 27... One week. You put all those together and we have 70 weeks. Translating it into years, we've got 49 years for seven sevens. 62 weeks is 434 years. One week is seven years. You put all those together and you have 490 years. Let's review very briefly what we saw last time. So verse 25, you'll notice that he divided it into seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Now clearly the seven weeks pertains to the rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem because there's two events mentioned in verse 25. The restoration and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because when Daniel wrote in the 6th century, Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple and the city had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's not there. He's up in Babylon. He's over Mesopotamia. He's many miles away. But he knows the city is in ruins. 
So the rebuilding of the city is one event. So it's everybody agrees the seven sevens pertains to this rebuilding project of the city of Jerusalem. The 62 weeks then begins immediately upon this, after the seven weeks. So we go another 62 weeks. Up there, I tried to color code it. I have yellow for the first seven weeks, you can see. Then 62 weeks takes us to uh, the end of my timeline there, another 434 years, or a total of 69 weeks, 7 and 62. And that entire time period is 483 years. Now, where there's some differences of opinion is when does the 70 weeks start? What's the starting point? Well, Gabriel told him, told Daniel, from when the word goes out to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks, 483 years. So we go into those books of Ezra and Nehemiah because that's when all the building took place of the temple and Jerusalem. But I want to point out that it's not the temple that is to be rebuilt. That's not where the timing begins. It's very specific. It's the rebuilding of the city. And the book of Nehemiah is what deals with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He starts with the walls and the gates. He, has to go, he goes back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah, to reconstruct the city. But he begins with the wall. He has to get their defenses in place. But while he's there, he says, the city is still in ruins. No houses have been rebuilt. And so there is many years involved in the reconstruction, the bringing Jerusalem back to the way it was before Nebuchadnezzar leveled it. Now, what's beautiful about Nehemiah's prophet, uh, book is he tells us the year when Nehemiah went back to do that. It's in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. And he sent Nehemiah back with official letters authorizing Nehemiah to do this in the city. So he was commissioned. Nehemiah was commissioned. This is the word that went out to restore and build Jerusalem. When was the 20th year of King Artaxerxes? It's all known in secular history. 446 or 445. He began to rule at 465. So, this is my date. You can see 465 B.C. up there. That's the beginning of my timeline for the beginning of the 70 weeks. So, 483 years from 446 B.C. takes you to 31 A.D. 
after we converted those years, 483 years, into biblical prophetic years. Remember how many days a biblical year was? 360 days, not 365. So we have to, we have to do some math here. We have to convert 483 years into 360-day years. So I did that math for you last time. We multiplied 360 by 483, came out with a big number, 173,880 days from 446. Then we converted those days back into the Julian calendar of 365-day years in order to plot the next date on our timeline. See, in the ancient world, they didn't have a timeline like this. They weren't following. It wasn't. We, we're doing this looking back, using the Julian calendar, 365-day years. But a biblical year is not 365, it's 360. Yeah, I showed you that from both Old and New Testament. The 42 months in the book of Revelation is translated into 1,260 days. Those are 360-day years. That's three and a half years there in Revelation 11. But we have it in the Old Testament as well. That took off some years. 483 biblical years. And you know, see the date it takes us to? 31 A.D., so I'm doing this in round figures. There are some Bible scholars that actually work this out to the very day when Messiah appears. And that day, they say, is April 6th or 14th, I can't remember. It is when he rode into Jerusalem on, the, on a donkey declaring himself the Messiah. One week before his death. I don't... Take that view. I don't think it's when he came into Jerusalem. I think it was when he was baptized, when he began his public ministry as the Christ. And you'll see that next time, why I believe that. So I just want you to see how that timeline of Daniel's 70 weeks takes us to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ toward the end of his life, 31 AD. It's amazing. So old, the Old Testament promised the Messiah, it predicted the Messiah, it prefigured the Messiah. But it never told us when he was going to appear until this prophecy was given. This told Israel when to look for him. Jerusalem restored, Messiah comes, appears. Not, not his birth. We don't mean coming to be born. He was born B.C., actually. A few years B.C. before the death of Herod. So verse 26 now has two more events. Verse 26 says, so verse 25 takes us up to the coming or the appearance of Messiah. Now he adds, after, six, after 62 weeks, 
Now, we're supposed to understand that he's also including the seven weeks. This is not a new time frame. But he simply says after, after 62 weeks. Notice, what happens next is subsequent to what occurs at week 69, or 7 and 62. So he appears at 69. Subsequent to 69, now he tells us he's going to be cut off. Messiah, it doesn't tell us when he's going to be cut off. Verse 27 tells us when he's going to be cut off. Right here, simply saying, after the 69th week, Messiah will be cut off. So what week are we in if we're after the 69 weeks? See my little section over on the other end? I coded it in red. That was not on the top timeline. I left that off because that's the one week. We have three time periods, seven weeks, 62, and one. Now we're, in other words, what he's telling us, the Messiah is going to be cut off in the 70th week. It's after. That word after is very important. It's an adverb. It's referring to time. It could have been translated afterwards. After the 69th week. So now we're in 70th. Because I see these time periods as one follows the other. We, I don't separate them. We're talking about a, a, a unit of 490 years, not broken up by other time uh, lapses in between these time periods. It's one continuous prophecy of 490 years. That's how I'm looking at it. have support of E.J. Young, the Hebrew scholar from Westminster Seminary. When he was, he wrote a commentary on Daniel, and he says the way the Hebrew language is, about 70 weeks, it's a masculine plural. He says we are to understand that as one unit of time. It's uninterrupted, these time periods. The one follows the other. So that's why we're now in the 70th week in verse 26. He doesn't say in one week. He simply says after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The NLT words it like this. After this period of 62 sets of seven... I mean, it's very clear the way the NLT does it. The anointed one will be killed. So we know the NLT is not a word-for-word translation like the New American Standard Bible. It's a dynamic equivalent. It's written so that junior hires can understand it. So the goal of the translators and a whole team of men worked on the NLT, scholars from all over to produce a translation giving us the rendering of what the writer intended to say. And he helps us. The translation helps us with sometimes adding words, rewording it a little differently, but getting the sense across. And that's exactly what is meant here after the period of 62 sets of seven. So one of my Old Testament commentaries that I've come to appreciate, the Old Testament German commentators, Kyle and Delich. Their uh, commentary on the book of Daniel, they 
I'm rewording it a little bit, but they say the cutting off of the Mashiach, they use the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the, the cutting off of the Mashiach constitutes the first great event of the 70th week. So now let's look at this word cut off. This is a term in the Old Testament that speaks of a violent death. And it is used regularly about the death of the wicked and the ungodly. Evildoers shall be cut off, Psalm 73. Genesis chapter 9, God says that he will no longer again cut off all flesh with the waters of a flood. So being cut off is a violent death. It's sudden. A person's cut off does not die safely and does not die in peace. They don't have a great death. So that's the word that's used to speak of the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why is the Messiah cut off? Why does he have to go through this? Death. Well, not because of any sin or evil that he has done. It's to bring all the blessings of verse 24. To put an end to sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To make atonement for iniquity. Everything that he did on the cross was not on account of his guilt. It was on the account of the guilt of others. Because he was standing in our place as a substitute. Isaiah 53 uses that same language, not the same in the original language, but it is translated in English the same. Isaiah 53 in verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. So there it is there. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ was cut off. Why he experienced death. For on account of the transgression of his people. To impart the blessings promised in verse 24. Notice this phrase that is added. And shall have nothing. This is very difficult in the original language. There's different ideas as to what it means. The NLT renders it appearing to have accomplished nothing. The anointed one being killed after 62 sets of seven adds appearing to have accomplished nothing by his death. That's an interesting that they're, they're giving an interpretation, but the original language is pretty much he has nothing. I, I wanted to expound it a little differently. I, I was putting it in the context of his suffering and his death that in the process of him putting himself in our place and dying in our stead, that he was stripped of everything. He had nothing. He was destitute. You know, I was thinking, thinking through it. I mean, just think, he was abandoned by his followers. All of them, they fled. 
Now, John eventually came back to the cross, but he was the only one. He had been been abandoned by those that he had trained and spent three-plus years with, that he called his friends. So he's abandoned by his friends. And, of course, we know from his cry when the... It became dark at noon for three hours till he died that he was suffering something that we cannot comprehend. But his father had also abandoned him. He lost communion with his father. He had been forsaken of God. And thus his cry. Add to that that he was stripped of his clothes. Yes, Lord Jesus Christ hung naked. On the cross, in a very public place that thousands of people going in and out of Jerusalem during Passover saw him like that. So in his darkest hour on the cross, he had nothing but the guilt of sin to answer for. The slightest comfort of a momentary satisfaction to come from a drink of water was denied him. When he said at the end, I thirst. And what did they put to his mouth? Sour wine. Not exactly a thirst quencher. I mean, when you just look at the whole picture of what Jesus Christ went through for our redemption to atone for iniquity, to put our sin away from God's sight. He had nothing. He was destitute. So I'm expounding it like that. He had nothing but the experience of soul-crushing and bodily suffering of the most intense nature. So that's the first thing that happens after 62 weeks in that 70th week period. Now, the rest of the verse, we need to finish. Notice what else it says is going to happen. And we'll read this all together. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Let me read it to you in the NLT. It's perfect. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. What we need to understand is what is being said here, it's simply occurring after week 69, so it's We could say it's in the 70th week, potentially, but it's after Messiah is cut off. This happens. Now, historically, when this is fulfilled is not during Jesus' lifetime. It was fulfilled a generation later, later, 40 years later. It's not inaccurate to say after Messiah is cut off, then these things are going to be fulfilled, 
in the 70th week. It's not speaking of the 70th week. If it had put all of that in week one week, then we would have a historical inaccuracy because the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, yet again, the second time, destroyed first by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's time. Now, Gabriel's saying it's going to happen again. And it's going to be near the coming of the Messiah, the ruler. But it's just, it's beyond it. It's beyond when Messiah died. So we're beyond the 70th week. With the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It doesn't have to fit in that time period. It's simply in the future. After. After 62 weeks. The prince who is to come. Now we know the word prince is the same word for the word, the word prince that's connected to an anointed one. Same word in the original. It, it's speaking of a leader, a commander, a ruler. Now in the case of Jesus Christ, him being called a prince, it, it's the ultimate, the ultimate meaning that he's a king. Who's going to have all power and authority one day. He came as a king, he, was, he born, was born as a king, he died as a king, and he is the coming king. He is ruling now as king from the right hand of God. Now, the prince who is to come, clearly this is a different individual. This is, the Messiah died after week 62. But still in the future, there's a prince coming. He's going to come after Now, who that is referring to, the people of the prince who is to come, that's referring to the Roman general Titus. He was given charge of putting down the Jewish rebellion that took place. There was a war against the Jews that Rome waged from 66 to 73 A.D., Seven years, 66 to 73. The Jews revolted against the rule of Rome. They did not want to be controlled by the Romans. And they have these uprisings. Well, they they gave Titus the command to deal with it, to deal with the Jewish rebellion. So he did all right. He came in and demolished Jerusalem again, and he tore the temple down. That happened. It's a well-known event. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote about it. The war on the Jews explains it in detail, what they did. 70 AD, that took place. So it's a whole 40 years later after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But notice how it's explained. The people of the prince who are to come, how do they come? Well, they come in a hostile manner. (laughs) They're coming as warriors, an army, to kill and destroy. So this is a very negative thing, they're coming. Not like the coming of anointed one, a prince. His coming was a little different. He was coming to destroy sin. This prince who is coming is coming to destroy people, a city, the temple, to put down the rebellion. 
Now, you know, the, the Roman general Titus, he eventually became the emperor of Rome. Pretty amazing. A few years later, 79 AD, he was made emperor after his father died, Vespasian. So Titus himself became the Roman emperor. And there's a monument to his honor in Rome for what he did to the Jews in Jerusalem in 70 AD. He will destroy the city and the sanctuary. But it doesn't end there. It goes on to say, and its end shall come with a flood, using the metaphor of a flood. This is speaking about his army, how it just inundated Judea, just swept the people away, destroyed their city, left in its wake nothing but destruction and ruin. This is what Titus did to the Jews. Thousands perished. And to the end there shall be war. In other words, it's going to be continual war until it's finished. Like I said, the war went from 66 to 73 A.D. And then it ends by saying, desolations are what? Decreed. Now, anytime we read that in the book of Daniel, that's talking, most of the times we read about a decree, that's talking about God's decree, God's determined purpose what he has appointed to happen in history. He has a plan and a purpose that unfolds in time. He's the sovereign. And if God has decreed it, it is fixed, it is irrevocable. It can't be changed. It says in Isaiah 14, As I have planned... This is God, Yahweh speaking, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, show it, so it shall stand. Verse 27, the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? That is, cancel it, revoke it, reverse it. Nobody. What God has planned and purposed, it is irrevocable. We can't stop it. It's like a freight train barreling down the tracks. Try to get out and stop the freight train. This is what God has planned and purposed to happen. So there's no changing it. This is going to happen to Jerusalem. Now let me wind up by bringing out two things. So verse 26 was about the death of Jesus, the death of Messiah. The anointed one's going to be cut off. And then after that is going to come the second destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the second destruction of the second temple. Because the temple that Solomon built, the original temple, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's lifetime. But when Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls in the city of Jerusalem, the previous book is the book of Ezra. And that book is about the rebuilding of the temple. So they started with the temple. They wanted their temple back. So there was a second temple constructed. 
Well, that second temple is going to be destroyed by Titus. That's why when you go on a tour of, of Jerusalem and you talk with the authorities that do tell about the places you go, they always talk about the second temple. You can't talk about the first temple. But the second temple, there's evidence of it in the present ruins of Jerusalem. When you go down deep, the walls and so on can be seen. So we have the death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ himself predicted both events. He predicted both. He predicted his own death. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, because the Jews could not execute anybody. They didn't have the authority to carry out the death sentence. All they could do is pass the death sentence, and they had to give the criminal over to the Romans to carry it out. And that's what they did with Christ. He's handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Crucify him. So Jesus says they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And notice how specific he is. To be mocked. To be flogged. That's the scourging he received that John 19 talks about. That was the ultimate scourging that he received. The one that was a cat of nine tails with little pieces of bone and metal in the leather strips. So it tears the flesh. Many a man died under the scourge. The Lord Jesus Christ did not. He endured it. Sustained the scourging, the flogging, and then he said, and crucified but he adds, and he will be raised the third day. So the Lord predicted his own death, just like Gabriel said to Daniel six centuries before, telling us the approximate time, the year when he's going to appear and be cut off. What about the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of that? Well, you know, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' last great sermon before he died, is known as the Olivet Discourse, given on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21 records the Olivet Discourse. Now, what prompted the Olivet Discourse was actually they're looking at the temple and they're admiring the temple and all the beauty of the, the temple. The, the temple grounds was a very complex place with a lot of other buildings around the temple and the disciples are admiring it. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. You're talking about the destruction of the temple. Luke adds this to it. Luke 21, verses 20, 22, and 24. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come. 
For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, it's only the book of Daniel that talks about this. So this is, a, this is a, an indirect reference to Daniel's prophecy right here. To fulfill all that is written. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that's Luke 21. Now there appears to be a connection between the cutting off of Messiah and the destruction of the city. Jesus had just said, these are the days of vengeance. Speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Vengeance for what? No doubt he means for rejecting him. Putting him to death. Because Jesus brought that out in some of his parables. And I'm thinking of the parable in Matthew 22. Where the king sends out his servants to invite people to a banquet. And those who were invited, what they do is they abuse the king's servants. And they even kill the king's servants. What happens to them? Matthew 22, verses 6 and 7. They seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, the king's response. The king was angry and sent his troops... And destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That is a reference to what was coming 40 years later with the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's a connection, a causal connection between Messiah being cut off and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But there's, a, there's also a theological connection which I want to make. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, the veil in the temple of Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom. Matthew's gospel gives us this detail, not recorded by any of the others. That was the curtain that hung in the way, a very heavy curtain, as a matter of fact. No man would be able to rip that thing apart. But it was torn from the top, showing that God did it. He ripped open the way into the most holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God manifested his presence, where only the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood on the Ark. That way was ripped open. Why, why did that happen? God was giving a visible demonstration of the fact that now access to his presence is open to everybody. You don't have to be a high priest. And you don't just get to go once a year as a high priest. The way into God's presence is open to everybody at any time, any place, because Jesus died. He dealt with sin once and for all by his death on the cross. He has given his people now access to God. Now, when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, 
See, I, I, the way I think of it is like the tearing of the veil was the first step. Now, lest anybody be confused about this matter of how we approach God, should we still bring a sacrifice to Him and sprinkle blood? God ended the, the discussion once and for all when He had General Titus come in and burn the temple. He burned it, by the way, because it was constructed of wood, not stone. Solomon's was made of stone. A lot of it. Titus burned it to the ground. Not him personally, but his troops. This was God's final word on this. The way to approach him is no longer by the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. By making your offering of a lamb, a goat, an ox, or a turtle dove, or pigeon, and sprinkling its blood. All of that is ended. We're in a new time now. A new temple is his body, the church. And we're all priests in that temple. And we all have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come with boldness before him. Now, I don't blame the Jewish people if they want to rebuild the temple. Because they, this, to them, this is how they approach God still. They're still thinking and worshiping as if they were in the Old Testament with the law of Moses. They want their temple. They have not had a place to offer an animal sacrifice. How do they celebrate the Day of Atonement? There's no blood. There's no sacrifice. There's no temple. No high priest. So... Will that temple someday be rebuilt? Will there be a third temple? Many people believe there will be. Because there's even one or two, I've heard about them, schools in Jerusalem training men for the priesthood. They've reconstructed some of the implements that are used in worship and so on. And it could very well happen. But we don't know. There we are. Verse 26 of Daniel, 70 weeks. Next week, verse 27, God willing. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.